0: We are in Judges chapter 9. If you want to open your Bible there or navigate on your device, Judges chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 22 through 57. (laughs) Verses 22 through 57. We did it first service. The topic, Abimelech comes to a dishonorable but fitting end as a woman drops a millstone on his head that crushes his skull. The title of our message The woman with the man crush. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, this morning we want to pay close attention to uh, the application you would like to make of this scripture to our own lives. At first reading, Lord, it seems so distant from the things that we struggle with and deal with. But uh, Lord, as always, it's totally appropriate and your spirit is here to teach us. And so guide us through it, Lord. Help us to understand it in context and then in the context of our own lives. We ask it in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. A Twitter poll asked Christians to list reasons for church splits they had been through or that they had firsthand knowledge about. The following are just a few of them. These are factual. These are not made up. First, a few random ones. There was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. There was an argument and a vote to decide if a clock in the sanctuary should be removed. Clocks can actually be very discouraging in sanctuaries if your pastor is going long. If you keep looking at it, that's why we have the clock in the back. Do you realize we have a clock in the back? I see you when you turn around. There was a major conflict when the youth borrowed a crock pot that had not been used for years. There was a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. Then there were these two about food, an argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs. There was a disagreement over the term potluck instead of pot blessing. There were these two about the Lord's Supper. Hey, there's somebody in here going, yeah. There were these two about the Lord's Supper, an argument over whether to have gluten-free communion bread. And they dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of straight grape juice. There was only one that I thought had any real merit. Two churches reported fights over the type of coffee to serve. One church moved from Folgers to Starbucks. I wouldn't have been there from the get-go, so I don't know what that's all about. I mean, if you're not going to serve craft coffee, what are you saying about your love for Jesus? Fashions and divisions in churches are nothing new. In the New Testament church in Corinth, there were divisions over the following. Which apostle was superior over sexual morality, lawsuits, marriage, eating meat that had been first sacrificed to an idol, head coverings for women, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, and then the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of believers. And by the way, in my research, I found one source that claimed the church at Corinth may have been significantly less than 200 members. Uh, I don't know how they derived that. I'm not saying it's scriptural, but uh, this uh, scholar seemed pretty confident that it was a a pretty average-sized church at 200 or less. That's a lot of fighting for just a few people, all of those issues. I mean, they really had it going. The Apostle Paul made a surprising statement to the Corinthians regarding factions and divisions. You'll find it in First, uh, first corinthians eleven nineteen says for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you factions and divisions can have a positive effect in that they reveal who if anyone is acting like a genuine believer so faction is not a positive thing but it can have the effect of revealing who is really walking with the lord I got to thinking about factions because our verses in the book of Judges chronicle a time of factions in Israel. Sadly, no one in them are approved. They're all wrong, and so we don't want to identify with any of them. But from their failures, we can understand at least two things. Number one, you can't avoid there being factions in your church. uh, But number two, you can bring an end to the factions in your church. So let's look first of all in verses 22 through 49 about factions themselves now we tend to have a romantic notion of what the first century church was like for sure it was vibrant with the life and the ministry of god the holy spirit nevertheless all of the letters written to churches were corrective of problems in them five of the seven letters that jesus dictated in the book of the revelation were likewise critical and corrective there are no perfect churches because there are no perfect people if you find a perfect church Don't go there, you'll ruin it. Sooner or later, there will be factions in any church. Now, we've had a few over the years. I'm not aware of any right now, but it's likely we will have others up until the rapture of the church. Paul, it's almost a promise. He says, there will be factions. And so we're having a a time, we're faction-free right now. We should have one of those signs. Uh, man, the ideas that come, thank you, Holy Spirit. You know how they say accident free for how many days and it 's always sad when it 's like one day when they have who 's the guy that has to start over on that and says we 've been accident free for one day, but we can have a faction free sign so that visitors would come in and say now, hey it 's safe in here right now i 'm not going to be cornered about what color the carpet ought to be or some other faction, maybe coffee, but not the carpet but anyway so uh, Looking to our verses, it was a time of factions that escalated, in their case, to civil war. So verse 22, after Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years. We're picking up the story, obviously, in midstream. Abimelech was the son of Gideon by a Gentile concubine. When Gideon died, Abimelech rallied his mother's kin in the city of Shechem to support him against the 70 sons of Gideon who stood to rule over them. They hired worthless and reckless men to kill the 70 half-brothers of Abimelech for one shekel each. They killed 69 of them, but Jotham, the youngest, escaped. Before he went into self-imposed exile, he rebuked both Abimelech and the men of Shechem, predicting that they would destroy one another. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Israel was a theocracy. They were ruled by God. That's how he intended it. They had no real king. They wanted a king... In order to be like the other nations. And we've talked a lot about that in this story. How that we should not want to be like the world. But we should live in a way that the world should want to be like us. Abimelech set himself up as a king by his own authority. It couldn't last since it was totally a work of the flesh. So in verse 23. God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Now, your Bible might say God sent an evil spirit. One scholar I consulted, and he's in agreement with most of the scholars, says the word evil in this passage can simply mean troubling or disastrous. It does not have to be interpreted as referring to a morally evil spirit. Hence, the passage may simply mean that as an act of judgment, God sent a spirit whose job it was to trouble or bring disaster to Abimelech. Now, we immediately assume the spirit would be a demon, but the word used could actually identify the task of an angel. Angels are sometimes dispatched to cause trouble and lots of it. We think of angels in the precious moments sense. Uh, But if you read your Old Testament, which we do with uh, detail, angels can cause a lot of trouble. An angel of death was sent on the eve of the Exodus to kill all the firstborn of Egypt. In the Book of Numbers, an angel was sent to kill the prophet Balaam. One angel killed 185,000 Assyrians encamped against Jerusalem while they slept in 2 Kings. Angels figure prominently in the Book of the Revelation meeting out God's judgments on a Christ-rejecting world. At the same time, there are examples of individuals in the New Testament being turned over to Satan or his agents for punishment. There was a man in the Corinthian church who was committing incest and adultery, and God commanded the leaders, he said, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his uh, life so that his soul might be saved. And God allowed a messenger of Satan to torment the apostle Paul in order to teach him to rely on grace and the sufficiency of grace and not to become overly conceited in the many revelations that he had received. If this was an evil spirit, then as an act of judgment, God allowed it to do what it wanted to do to Abimelech up to a point. God was not the author of its evil. For his part, Abimelech was never forced to act one way or another. He wasn't possessed by a spirit. He simply had the freedom to act according to his sinful nature without restraint. It provides an example for us of God's providence. God gets the outcome that he requires in this text... But he doesn't violate anyone's free will. Whether by an angel or a demon, the Lord gives uh, gives these non-believers a nudge, but they act strictly according to their own nature. Verse 24. The crime done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might be settled and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who aided him in the killing of his brothers. And so the Lord is setting up a situation... ...in which divine justice comes upon Abimelech and the men of Shechem... ...who seem to be uh, together, uh, but the spirit is going to uh, wreak havoc among them... ...and they are going to turn on one another. Verse 25, "...and the men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains. They robbed all who passed by them along that way, and it was told Abimelech." The ambush was against Abimelech in this sense... They robbed the merchants before they could pay the toll and tribute that was being collected by Abimelech to fund his monarchy. So he was therefore suffering economically. And beyond that, it was an affront to his authority, because as king, uh, with a standing army or militia, you would think that he would keep the roadways safe. And so they were kind of rubbing this in his face. And uh, these men of Shechem had previously supported Abimelech, and so apparently Uh, They had fallen out of favor with one another. And there was this rebellion going on. Verse 26, now Gaul, the son of Ebed, came with his brothers and went over to Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. The Gaul group swoops in for a hostile takeover. They seem to be a band of brothers who go from place to place, taking advantage of local strife uh, to line their own pockets. They're like a traveling street gang. And they heard there was trouble in Shechem, and so they went down there. Verse 27, so they went out into the fields and gathered grapes from their vineyards, they trod them, and they made merry. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. These guys must have had mad winemaking skills. Because it says they gathered grapes, trod them, and then made merry. In other words, they got drunk on them. I I don't know how long it normally takes to go from grape to glass in fermentation. Uh, One do-it-yourself site said around six months, but... Uh, If you tell me, then I'll know you're a wino, so uh, I'm just kidding, sort of. Then I came across an article titled, Turning Welches into Wine in 48 Hours. There's a product, it's called Spike Your Juice. It's a yeast-based kit, it's really just a powder that you add that ferments any 100% fruit juice, so long as it has 20 grams of sugar or more per serving. Into an alcoholic brew, anywhere from four to fourteen percent alcohol by volume. That puts its potency somewhere between beer and wine. So if your kids have these little packets that say "spike your juice," it's not uh, it's not the water additives that that are going around. One reviewer commented saying, "You know what's better than a carton of Tropicana? Carton of boozy Tropicana." Anyway, so apparently you can uh, you can today you can. ...ferment uh, grape juice in about 48 hours... ...so the Gaul group knew something that we don't know about wine... ...and in a wine-induced moment of bravado... ...they end up cursing Abimelech and challenging him. Verse 28, then Gaul, the son of Ebed, said... ...who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve? Is he not the son of Jeroboam and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem... ...but why should we serve him? If only this people were under my authority... Then I would remove Abimelech. So he said to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. And so Gaul here is playing the race card. Abimelech identified with the men of Shechem as their kin because of his mom. She was a Shechemite. But his dad, Gideon, was Jewish. And so now Gaul is saying, you don't want this half Jew ruling over you. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaul, the son of Ebed, his anger was aroused. Abimelech, we'll see, was living elsewhere... He had left Shechem in the very capable hands of a ruler who was loyal to him by the name of Zebul. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly saying, Take note, Gaul the son of Ebed and his brothers have come to Shechem, and here they are fortifying the city against you. Now therefore get up by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. And it shall be as soon as the sun is up in the morning that you shall see, uh, you shall rise early excuse me, and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, You may then do to them as you find opportunity. Zebul believed that an early morning surprise attack from the east with the sunrise obscuring them would overwhelm a sluggish, hungover Gaul. And so verse 34, So Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. When Gaul the son of Ebed went out and stood in the entrance to the city gate, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. And when Gaul saw the people, he said to Zebul... Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebul said to him, You see the shadows of the mountains as if they were men. And so, Gaul is out blurry-eyed from the previous night's merrymaking. He couldn't make out this advancing army. They didn't have Ray-Bans in those days. And the sun was rising, and he was all blurry-eyed, trying to get his first cup of coffee down. And so he mentioned it to to Zebul, and Zebul convinced him he was seeing elephants on parade. You know, this is some post-drunken kind of vision. You got, you know, sand in your eyes or sleep from the night before. So Gal spoke again. He said, no, people are coming down from the center of the land. And another company is coming from the diviner's terebinth tree. Now, maybe it's just me, but Gal for a warrior seems a little slow. I mean, he's up. He's made all these moves against Abimelech. He knows Zabul is uh, loyal. And he's out there thinking, these people, why are they advancing on me? What should I do about that? This guy's an imbecile. Verse 38, Then Zebul said to him, Where indeed is your mouth now with which you said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out, if you will, and fight with them now. It's too late to make a run for it. He couldn't try to hide in the city, or the citizens would see him as a coward and withdraw their support. The only option was to fight. So Gal went out leading the men of Shechem and fought with Abimelech, and Abimelech chased him. And he fled from him, and many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. You're going to see throughout this that it all seems so easy for Abimelech. But that would prove his downfall. He wouldn't see the day's events as God's divine judgment on him until it was too late. We'll talk a little bit about this in a minute. But uh, the wicked, when they're prospering, they, they don't understand how close they are to God's judgment. Then Abimelech dwelt at Arumah, and Zebul drove out Gaul and his brothers so that they would not dwell in Shechem. This seems to be a summary of what we just read. Abimelech came from Aruma, where he was dwelling, to engage Gaul and his brothers, who had been driven out of the city by Zebul's strategy. And it came about on the next day that the people went out into the field, and they told Abimelech. Citizens of Shechem resumed their daily lives, thinking that their temporary rebellion would be overlooked. Now that Abimelech had driven out Gaul, they thought, well, that didn't last long, so let's just go out and go to work as usual. So he took his people, divided them into three companies, and lay in wait in the field. And he looked, and there were the people coming out of the city, and he rose against them and attacked them. Then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city. And the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed them. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city and killed people who were in it, and he demolished the city, and he even sowed it with salt. So here Abimelech and his men are slaughtering unarmed farmers and their families. It was merciless, but you have to remember the support of the citizens of Shechem for the murder of the sons of Gideon was also a terrible merciless crime for which they uh, required judgment. God is long-suffering. He's not willing that men would reap what they deserve, but his long-suffering always has an end. And for these Shechemites, this was it. Now when all the men of the tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god of Bareth. And it was told Abimelech that all the men of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. Then Abimelech went up to the Mount Zalman, and he and his people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bough from the trees, took it and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the people who were with him, What you have seen me do, make haste, and do as I have done. So each of the people likewise cut down his own bow and followed Abimelech, put them against the stronghold, set the stronghold on fire above them, so that all the people of the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. What a horrifying scene. Don't you ever, when you're watching a movie or a TV show, say, don't, don't go in there, don't hide there. They're going to burn you out. You know how easy it is? Just run. Just run or fight, but don't hole up in, you know, the famous thing is always they go in the, In the basement, and they always show the foot walking in the dust coming down, and they think, Oh, they don't know I'm here. Then they're all dead. I mean, that never works. And so, these a thousand people, this is grisly. Of interest here, too, is that in his rebuke of Abimelech, Jotham had compared him to a bramble bush that was ready to burst into flame, and he predicted he would destroy the men of Shechem by fire. Now, Abimelech probably doesn't remember this he's certainly not trying to fulfill this it just comes true uh, as God is working things out to his glory no one in this story has any consideration of God yet he was behind what could be seen delivering justice factions abound in this narrative they clash in terribly destructive ways factions will abound in church they must occur Paul said to the faction-filled Corinthians. Now, that doesn't mean we ignore them. It doesn't mean that we are influenced by them. Instead of being influenced by them or ignoring them, you can bring an end to the factions in your church. That's the point of the remaining verses. The weakest, most unlikely person in a church can be used to end conflict. Let's see how things played out in Judges, and that will reinforce that idea. So verse 50, Then Abimelech went to Thabaz, and he encamped against Thabaz and took it. We can only guess that Thebes had somehow sided with and supported Gaul against Abimelech, and now he wanted to punish them. Uh, we don't know for sure. It may just be uh, something else altogether, but flushed with victory, uh, Abimelech consulted his own pride, and he said, hey, while we're on this victory roll, while we're destroying people, let's go out and take over Thebes as well. And so notice again how Abimelech seems to be prospering. He defeated Gaul. He overwhelmed the men of Shechem. And he made it all look so easy. Just because evil seems to be prospering is no reason to think God is not at work. He is always at work, working all things together for good to them that love him and are the called according to his purpose. It's just that we don't see it. We see the ultimate end of things, right? I mean, we know the future. It's locked down. It's solid. It's in the book of the Revelation uh, all the way through. We see into eternity future. Uh, we can see things along the way, but when it comes to our personal future, our personal history, that's muddy. We, we don't see what's going to happen this afternoon or tomorrow. And when things that are in the category of negative happen, then we're always startled. And it seems as though God has abdicated the throne and is allowing wickedness to prosper. Uh, and that's just never true. It's just that we don't see the whole story. At any moment along the way, Abimelech could have turned to the Lord, by the way. He was the man who would be king, however, and when God wanted no king over his people. And so even though we see these terrible judgments taking place against Shechem and against Abimelech, we know from other stories in the Bible that God always responds to repentance. It says that he changes his mind, which doesn't mean he actually has double-mindedness. It means he acts according to his nature. You see this most prominently when Jonah went to Nineveh. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh because he had a sneaking suspicion that they could get saved. And if a Jew in those days wanted anything, it was for judgment to rain down on Nineveh who had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. No Jew wanted a Ninevite to be saved. And so Jonah ran, but God got his attention, sent him there, and then he preached the worst evangelistic message of all time. In 40 days, you're all going to be dead. God bless you. And on their own, the men of Nineveh thought, maybe we can appeal to God's mercy. And they did, and, and they got saved. And God relented of his judgment for a time until another wicked generation rose up. And it bummed Jonah out. And so as we read through this, and if anybody has the idea that God is in any way vindictive or cruel, he's always giving opportunity That's why we called our revelation series the grace of wrath. Because as God is pouring out his wrath, he is exhibiting grace, seeking to draw men to himself. If you're not a Christian here this morning, the Lord is seeking to draw you to the cross where your sins can be forgiven and where you can be born again. Now it was time to deal uh, deal with Abimelech. He wasn't going to repent. And so verse 51, there was a strong tower in the city and all the men and women, all the people of that city... Fled there and shut themselves in, and they went up to the top of the tower. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, and he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. If something works for you, why not stick with it? Abimelech was almost nonchalant now. It was all in a day's work, burning towers with unarmed men, with women and children in them. And if you're the people of Thabez, what are you thinking? It's another tower situation. Hey, he just burned the tower of Shechem and killed a thousand people. What do you guys want to do? Let's hide in the tower. Maybe he'll think that we're not in there if we're really, 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 really quiet. And so they're up in the tower, and all of a sudden, Abimelech comes and he says, "Wow, this is this is easy. It's like ducks in a row. No one had any thought of divine intervention. If you had come upon this scene as a non-believer, you're just journeying through this area of the country for whatever crazy reason, and you saw these days events." You would think that God had abandoned Israel, that there was no sense of, of God being involved at all. No one was consulting the Lord. No one was using his name, even in vain. They were just people doing what they wanted to do, uh, warring against each other. In fact, you might conclude that there wasn't a God and that he, he wasn't able to deal with this. But you would have no idea. You wouldn't come on this and say, wow, this has God written all over it. But in a minute, you're going to see that it does. Because God's intervention brings Abimelech of his own free will to an exact geographical location. This is, sends goosebumps up my spine when I think about this. Without violating his free will, without revealing his hand, God brings Abimelech to an X marks the spot kind of a thing. He's standing in in the exact spot where he needs to stand for this to happen. Verse 53, a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Now, I missed ancient architecture in college, but I'll go out on a limb and suggest there wasn't a grinder way up on top of that tower. How was it this gal had the small millstone on her person? I don't know, but she must have for some reason brought it with her. Have you ever had to evacuate in a hurry? I mean, a a real evacuation where the fire department says you need to leave right now? We lived through several of those in Southern California. Uh, One time I was a boy up to uh, later on when we had a small family. And, man, you got to go. And you got about five minutes or less to grab a few things. And you always grab stuff and later on you think, why did I bring uh, that and not something more valuable? Uh, and, And so... It could be that she just grabbed the first thing that she could, but at any rate, she had this millstone, and in her case, it would change history. Abimelech was overconfident, got too close to the door, stood right on the spot where God wanted him, blammo, skull crush. I wonder what they'd use to make the sound of his skull being crushed into a, uh, you know, if it was a movie. I'm sorry, I think about these things. Trying to add realism to the story. You know, uh, where is it? Star Wars sound designer Ben Burke created the distinctive sound of a lightsaber by combining the hum of an idle film projector and the buzz from an old TV set. How many of you had tube television sets? Anybody still have a tube set? I want to talk to you if you do. But they had a distinctive hum. Add that with the projector. Could have just hired me. I could have done But anyway, that's how they did it. Now, a little more to our uh, context. The horrifying sound of the shower stabbing in the original Psycho. Alfred Hitchcock closed his eyes, and they stabbed a whole bunch of melons one at a time until finally they hit a cassava. And he said, that's it. And so when you watch that, if you have the liberty to watch Psycho, and you hear the stabbing, Uh, The actual stabbing sound is a cassava melon. That should take some of the fear out of it. (laughs) Kids, it's just a melon. Anyway, I only actually mention this because we're reaching out to any Foley artists that might be in the audience. Uh, That's the sound technicians, the Foley artists. And then I got to thinking, you know, someday somebody is going to search for Foley, and they're going to find our Bible study because of search things, and they're going to get saved. And they're going to affect all of Hollywood. And all of Hollywood's going to be saved because I'm stupid. Uh, But anyway. (laughs) Then he called quickly to a young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me. Lest men say of me, a woman killed me. So his young man thrust him through and he died. Last breath. This is your last breath. Your head has been crushed by a millstone. And you have the wherewithal to know that a woman did it. You're kind of looking. You say, with your last breath, wouldn't you hope that he would repent? You say, Lord, I understand. Now, this day started so promising for me. <laughs> I was, I, I wiped out Gael. I destroyed the Shechem. I was about to take Thabez. I was king of kings here. And all of it. Now I understand you brought me to... What's this X right here that says, Abimelech, stand here. It's like a, a blocking on stage. Yeah, really? Stand right here. And stuff. And instead of saying, I repent, please save me, he goes, Hey, kill me. I don't want people to say a woman killed me. Of course, a woman killed you. Is it any better if they say a young boy, your armor bearer, killed you at your request? These guys are losers. <laughs> when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. There's no real cause here to inflame patriotism. They were following a madman. No reason to burn these people out. In fact, probably many of them were happy that it was over. And so with Abimelech dead, everyone returned to their normal lives. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. And all the evil of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads. And on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. We should pause to marvel at the spiritual strategy at work here. I mean, the men of Shechem and Abimelech must somehow be used against each other as a judgment upon both, leaving both defeated and destroyed. How would you have done it? For, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about this because God's answer was already there, but this would be a great question to somebody who doesn't know this story to say, here's, here's the players, and here's what we need to accomplish. We need to get everybody dead. That was involved in this. So how would you do it? And this is a great strategy. And God is doing it not as a puppet master. Not sending people to their doom. But by simply giving them a nudge. I said I'll put a spirit of ill will between these people. I have an angel that's going to suggest that maybe things aren't as good as they could be. And they're going to go at it based on their own nature. And they're going to accomplish exactly what I want to accomplish. I wish I could look back on my life and see all those moments working out the way God says they will. one day I will, whether in this life or in the next. I just need to trust right now that God is at work. Now, turning again to ourselves, the Apostle Paul didn't simply list various factions and divisions in Corinth. He told them what to do case by case to overcome their factions. I mentioned one, this guy who was sleeping with his father's wife. Paul said, hey, this guy, and this probably happened on a Sunday morning. Or Sunday night when they were, hey, I have a letter from Paul. And by the way, this guy, hey, who's sleeping with his father's wife. Oh, I'm not pointing anybody here. <laughs> Kick him out of the church and turn him over to Satan. Ushers, turn this guy over to Satan, would you please? And, and the guy repents. In Second Corinthians, we read that he repented and he comes back in. The Corinthians didn't want to receive him back in. And Paul said, guys... Come on, he's repented now, so bring him back. uh, Sunday night, they were worshiping God, singing and praying in tongues and having spiritual gifts and all this. Monday morning, they were dragging each other to court, suing one another. And so Paul says, settle on the way. Don't get to court. Do anything you have to do to settle that lawsuit before you get to court. And so he wasn't in favor of division, and he didn't just leave it out there. He gave advice. And, and that's what we always need. But probably the best overall advice he gives is the famous love passage in First Corinthians 13. If you allow God's Spirit to have His way in you and respond in love, you'll overcome factions, at least for your part. People who are divisive can only continue if other people go along with them. Factions always depend on numbers. So all you have to do is refuse to join. Don't align yourself with anybody against anybody else And it will kill factions. There will just be one person or one couple that is trying to stir up controversy. It's funny how we get so interested in this passage. Trying to figure out exactly what is meant by the evil spirit God sent. When all the while we have within us the Holy Spirit he sent to permanently indwell us. And to constantly infill us. He's the only spirit I need concern myself with. And if I'm yielded to him walking with the Lord. I am going to kill factions. I'm not going to be a part of them. I'm going to drop millstones on them. uh, And they're going to die because I refuse to get involved with them. As I said, there isn't anything like that going on in our church right now. So don't think I'm preaching to anybody. You know, it's an occupational hazard when you teach the Bible that people think, you're talking to me. You took that opportunity to defend yourself and you're talking to me. Nothing like that's going on in our church. Or if it is, I don't know about it. And if I don't know about it, I'm happy. If you want to cause a faction, go talk to one of our elders. They love to deal with that stuff. (laughs) But until we are raptured, there's always going to be a tendency to break into factions. And we laughed earlier at all this crazy stuff that people fight over. And I left out some of the things that I found online where literal fights, fist fights broke out in church over issues where they had to call the police and stuff like that. Uh, uh, Hopefully nothing like that will ever happen. Uh, But uh, we should expect that there will be at least a spirit towards factions. Just be ready for it and put it down as you walk with the Holy Spirit. Just say no and work to maintain the unity of the spirit, the Bible says, in the bond of peace. Let's pray.